Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Understory podcast. Understory is a global community of innovators, entrepreneurs, and startups and companies focusing on making our world more sustainable. Today, we have Rich Mokolu, who is the CEO of Parsimony, to join our podcast and talk about what Parsimony is doing and what Rich and team are building. So, Rich, thank you so much for joining our podcast today. And uh, tell us a little bit more about your background before we dive into Parsimony. Well, thank you. First of all, thanks for having me. Um, so, my background is mechanical engineering. I uh, did that undergrad at Georgia Tech. Uh, and went into um, doing manufacturing supply chain strategy at GE, uh, starting in the aviation business, uh, build, helping building jet engines. So I'm Six Sigma certified and was fortunate enough to be part of the executive leadership program. Uh, so GE's corporate staff, uh, where I flew around the world working in different industrial businesses within uh, manufacturing supply chain strategy. What an amazing experience. I don't think a lot of people can say that they have helped build jet engines, but uh, <laughs> tell us more about what that experience uh, has informed you and led you to build Parsimony. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so Parsimony kind of came about from personal frustrations. Um, so uh, like most engineers love to do, I love to tinker on my free time. Um, so I, I basically had a dream uh, senior college right before graduation uh, for this uh, loading device that relates to the military space. Um, and I built what was in my dream and it actually worked. Uh, funnily enough, uh, it worked and was able to get uh, utility patents issued in the US and in Russia through the PCT filing process. And in my day job at GE, I was doing manufacturing supply chain strategy there. So understood the intricacies of supply chain um, and it was, it was a mix of experience on seeing how large corporates do strategy and how being a hardware founder, how a lot of hardware founders tend to approach supply chain strategy. Um, there were a lot of inefficiencies, um, specifically when you look at the way corporates do it, right? It's all about mitigating risk, rightfully so, right? So it's, you tend to make similar or the same decisions over and over again. So you go to the same vendors you've, you've whitelisted for decades. Right. As a hardware founder, the, the way you tend to approach supply chain strategies is around, you know, Amazon buying. Right. So you just find a vendor or CM and you just have them do everything for you. Um, the risk, obviously, with that is that you lose leverage over time. Right. So which is why the companies like GE's of the world have a very robust supply chain team. But then when you go to the G's of the world, um, it's very complex but then you're mitigating risk so much that you don't really allow yourself room to innovate or to find, um, to find and weed out those inefficiencies. Uh, so I, I, actually, I'll give you an example, um, which will help crystallize uh, everything. Uh, and it kind of links to what parts when it does. And so an example of this is, um, we'll say enterprise customer A, which we've worked with. Um, and they've been in the industry for over a hundred years, a multi-billion dollar company. They're very well known. And so they said, hey, look, we know what we're doing, but if parts of money can save us, you know, 25% in our supply chain, it'd be a slam dunk home run, right? And for this company, they're so cost conscious that 10% would be a huge win. And so 25% was a huge stretch goal. And so when they use parts of money, we say them over 80%, over 80%. They said, okay, look, that was a fluke. 
you got lucky, right? So let's give you this real problem that we've really been trying to solve and let's see how you really do with that. I mean, that we got that over 55% of cost reductions. Now the natural question is, how did we do that? And there are two levers that we pulled. The first lever we pulled was understanding the right manufacturing methods that made sense for the given product line, right? So it turns out they're using more expensive manufacturing methods than they actually needed to. And the second lever is going down to the tier two and tier three manufacturers within the supply chain. So just to take a step back, when people talk about supply chain, supply chain structures are typically within a tiered um, ecosystem. So you can think of a tier one manufacturer being a Foxconn, for example, they make the iPhone. So they do final assembly, test and packaging. Um, so these can also service somewhat OEMs, if you will. And then you have your tier two manufacturers. So they make the components that go within the product line. So in, in the case of an iPhone, they make the enclosures or they make, let's say, uh, the, the actual circuit board that goes into the iPhone. And then the tier three level, you go into the raw material providers. So they make, let's say, the aluminum that goes into the phone or, or the gorilla glass that goes into the phone, right? And so a lot of times you'd hear this phrase, you know, supply chains are very, you know, opaque, right? So they're not very transparent. But what we've found is this really just, that phrase is just a symptom and not a root cause, right? The root cause is within supply chain structures, no, no one says no, right? When you have millions of dollars on the line, right? So if you're a large company, like company A in this example, and you have millions of dollars on the line, you give it to your, your vendor that you've whitelisted for over a decade, right? They never tell you no, right? But they may not be able to do it. So they, what they do is they contract that to someone else, a tier two or tier three who actually does all the work. But all you know is that your parts get delivered to you. And so this is why a lot of times people don't understand the intricacies of supply chains where there's a lot of opacity because of the different actors and incentives within the actual ecosystem. So Richard, that's a great example. I love that. And you really point out how complex the manufacturing process is, especially for hardware products. And when people think about hardware uh, companies, they may think of the thing that they're most familiar with. But um, as you point out uh, on your website, the manufacturing uh, comes in all sorts of shapes, uh, whether that's 3D printing, whether that's machining, fabrication, injection molding, electronics casting, assemblies, and, and all those different elements contribute to making a product come to life. And you talked about it and alluded to supply chain resiliency and using information and insights to help provide to the design the manufacturing process and connect that to supply chain. Tell us more about how important it is uh, of the supply chain resilience and what is the state of play? So how are companies of all shapes recognizing the importance of supply chain resilience? That's, that's a great question. And when, when, you look, when you think about supply chain resilience, this is something supply chain managers have typically focused on, right? So it's not a, a necessarily a new concept, but what, what is changing is the industry itself, right? The, the, the landscape, the playing field, if you will. 
So to, to, to answer that properly, I would have to go back a little bit in time to cover a little bit of history. So if you look at supply chains and the way manufacturing ecosystems are structured, um, so, and I'll use the US primarily as, as, as a key starting point. So manufacturing primarily were in countries like US, et cetera. And over time it migrated to China, Southeast Asia, and a, a lot of different low cost countries, right? So it, the movement there is around, how do you maximize profit and shareholder value, right? So go to low cost countries and, and that kind of solves things. And so you, ha you had a lot of concentration of, of manufacturing um, capacity, if you will, in specific regions. And so when you look at resiliency in, in the future, you, you're, you have more distribution, right? So you have more fragmentation. The, the reason being is when you look at, you know, sustainability, for example, reducing carbon footprints, or you look at um, the risk of pandemics, right? Uh, if you will, you need to have a more distributed network to basically deal with that. And the importance of this, and I'll use the, the pandemic uh, as, as one of the examples. Um, so what was interesting about the pandemic is if, if COVID started in any other country, potentially, let's say that COVID started in, let's say, um, I don't know, Kenya, for example, right? It would not have crippled the world the way it did. Um, because when you look at what happened with COVID, China has, has really taken a huge major role in terms of manufacturing capacity, right? And so when we needed things like ventilator components or whatever have you, China was offline, right? So what that, what that did is you had basically Urensis the scenario where we needed ventilators, right? And we couldn't really manufacture the ventilators um, because some of the components or at a tier two and tier three level manufactured in China primarily, right? Or Southeast Asia. And so where parts money came in is basically identifying alternative manufacturing methods and alternative manufacturers that you could use locally within your ecosystem to manufacture ventilators faster. And so that's where we were able to kind of help out. Um, but the key in resilience is, is the future is not gonna be around a specific region. Um, it's not even only going to be about only local. It's going to be about how do you mix your supply chain decision making around a hybrid of local and international global supply chains, right? Well, with that, you have an increase in complexity, right? And so where parts of money comes in is we basically use machine learning to reduce the cognitive load of that complexity to where experts focus on that last 20% that matters. We basically use reinforcement learning to make that decision faster over time. And I think you just answered my next question, which is how does parsimony help uh, with uh, this particular problem? And one of the things that you point out, which is really interesting, Rich, is that when people think about supply chain resilience, I think some people only focus on the source or the sourcing aspect versus it's the sourcing, it's where your supplies are where your manufacturing capabilities uh, reside, but also as you pointed out, it's the process, it's how do you actually manufacturing the design yeah. process. And it's interesting to learn that actually that's where you're talking about the cognitive manufacturing supply chain is taking different kinds of data from your clients and helping them to understand 
where they can do things differently from a manufacturing design process perspective. And then you also help them with constructing a better, more resilient supply chain with different vendors and, and so forth. Exactly. Exactly. Our, our whole thesis is this, is that, you know, the, the future, this new paradigm that we're in um, is all about uncertainty, right? That's the only certainty we have is uncertainty. Yeah, I would never have imagined, I would have never imagined I'll be witnessing uh, countries go to war again in my lifetime, at least. Um, but that that is the case today, right? And so for supply chain managers, you need an edge to be able to quickly adapt to that uncertainty. Now, it's not reasonable to, you know, put so much pressure on an expert, right, a supply chain manager expert, to manage all this uncertainty in real time. It's not humanly possible. And so where Partsman comes in is basically leveraging data and a network to provide that edge to the supply chain manager to where you can more effectively adapt to changing landscapes in a data-driven decision, right? So you're basically making more data-driven decisions that yields better outcomes over time. That's great. So in terms of the company, where are you guys based? And uh, I know you have some big name clients, maybe share that with the audience as well. Yeah, so we're, we're a fully distributed team. Um, and so our, our core, the, the, uh, my twin brother and I, my co-founder Roland and I are based out of New York City. Um, and we have a fully distributed team. So we have team members in Canada, Dubai, Kenya, um, Virginia, and Poland. Um, and so we're fully uh, distributed team and, and Nigeria as well. Uh, in terms of in terms of customers, uh, we're still early days, but some of our, our big customer names would be Stanley Black and Decker, which is more more, more noticeable. Um, we're also in talks with a few other corporates. Um, our, our biggest customer base, who we resonate with the most, are customers building really complex um, product lines that have to do with some level of mechanical assemblies, right? So, a matter of electronics and mechanical assemblies. So, think like automotives, aerospace, robotics. That's great. And I, I love the, the history, uh, the founding story and where, where you are. Um, it's, you guys are building some really cool stuff here. And tell us uh, as a last question, um, where can people find you if they want to learn more about your company, if they want to work for your company, if they want to learn more about the solution, get a demo, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So uh, people can find us at our website. Uh, it's partsimony.com. Uh, to spell it out, it's P-A-R-T-S-I-M-O-N-Y.com. Great. Well, Rich, we hope to talk to you again as you continue to build out your company. And uh, thank you so much for being on the Understory podcast and, and this particular episode. And uh, Rich Mokolo, the CEO of Parsimony. Thank you so much for having me.